Hello and welcome to Better Beings, a podcast bringing ideas for happier, more balanced and fulfilling lives. Better Beings brings together innovative and diverse thinkers to discuss the key challenges facing humanity from the worlds of business, creativity, spirituality and wider society. We believe that a more human approach will unlock the future we need. Kinder connection to ourselves and each other is the starting point. Better Beings is a home for diversity of thought and backgrounds and a safe space for authentic and challenging perspectives. Our guest today is Victoria Johnson, co-founder and leader of London's Museum of Happiness. To find out more about Victoria and the museum's work, please visit the show notes for further details. Everything else will come out in our conversation. I'm Joel Brevet, and I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Johnston. Hello and welcome, Vicky. Hi, so nice to be here. It's such a joy and honour. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, excellent yeah, to, ha- to have you here today. We've been really excited about this conversation particularly because we have created this podcast to look at how we can be better. And I think a co-founder of the Museum of Happiness, what better way to maybe look at ourselves and look at an understanding of how we can be better rather than do better. Mm, yeah, I love that. Yeah, I love the whole ethos of the podcast. So aligned. That's really good. Well, I think, I mean, unless you have something to add quickly, Mike, uh, I think I'd love to go straight in and ask you, what is the Museum of Happiness? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. So Museum of Happiness, we're a not-for-profit social enterprise and we share the science and art of authentic, sustainable happiness. And we do that in playful and reflective ways. Um, And we do that through workshops, through experiences, through creating physical spaces where people can explore the science and the art and the history of authentic, sustainable happiness. And the reason that we started this in the first place is because according to the World Health Organization, depression is the number one cause of disability in the whole world right now. Wow. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be this way. There are scientifically proven, really practical, simple ways that we can make friends with the mind. We can tend to difficult emotions. We can cultivate more happiness and peace inside of ourselves. But it's not really showcased anywhere. It's certainly not taught in the education system. So we were like, what if you go your whole life and you don't learn any of this stuff and you're just trapped in your own suffering? So that's why we started it. Amazing. It's um, it is, as as you said, Vicky, um, it's pretty nuts that like so few people know about this stuff. Um, So, yeah, amazing. You're doing it. Why, Why have you called it a museum? So. There's such a science to happiness. There's so there's an art to sustainable happiness. There is a history. There's over 25 years of research of positive psychology. Um, and we were like, okay, there's museums of war. There's loads of museums of slavery. There's museums of air. There's museums of coal. There's, there's a vagina museum. There's so many different types of museums. Um, Happiness is one of the most important things in the world. Why is it not being showcased, the science, the art, the history? And we were like, don't just leave this for someone else to do. You know, it's like, actually, let's do it. So we we were kind of like, is this just a bit of a crazy idea? Muse means divine spark. And I think museums can be quite outdated now. I mean, there's some really good ones as well, especially in London. But we were like, what if we can take people on an experiential adventure where they explore the science and art of sustainable happiness, but what does happiness mean to you personally? And it's not about relics in glass cases that we're not able to touch. It's like, how do you create your own museum of happiness inside of yourself? Um, so that's why we went with that, that name. And so, so what does so what does happiness mean to you when you when I hear you say that? I mean, you've created this organization, something that is like you know in the world serving the many. But how does it serve you? Yeah, it's a really good question. And 
people ask me this question all the time on interviews and, and podcasts. And what I've realized is that my answer has changed over the years. Um, right now in my life, this is a model that I've come up with myself, of my own personal formula for happiness. And I teach this to other people. For me, authentic, sustainable happiness is having a balance of pleasure, purpose, and peace. They are the three Ps for sustainable happiness in my personal life. And also that's what we teach as well. Positive psychology will back this up as well. If we have to have a balance of pleasure and purpose in our life. But I realized without the peace element too, I get exhausted or burnt out or overwhelmed. So actually to so much pleasure and all the purpose, it's like, actually, no, we need really strong foundations of peace. So it's balancing those three things actually for me is what happiness is. Um, and I think as well, kindness, kindness to myself, kindness to others and kind of, I guess, creating this place inside of me, this safe refuge that I can always come home to, which isn't really so dependent on the ups and downs of life. It's like I've cultivated this happiness and peace, which isn't quite so shakeable by external things. So that's what it means to me. It's funny, since knowing that you were going to be a guest and knowing like, you know, the difference between being and doing, you know, us being human beings, but I feel in this modern society, so many of us have just become human doings mm -hmm. rather than human beings. Mm -hmm. And it made me just really reflect on the idea that happiness isn't something that we do. Happiness is something that we are or can mm -hmm. or can be. And so there's that quite mm -hmm. big that quite big difference. And so this like really like had me thinking as well about like how do I be happy? And rather than things that I do, it's, I suppose, like, yeah, a state of balancing those, mm -hmm. those things and, and peace and things that I suppose I feel in my in in my, in my own life and, like, like, habits that I put in that kind of allow me to have that balance. Mm -hmm. so I suppose I wonder, are there particular habits that you maybe have in your life that allow you to, in essence, fill the carafe of your personal happiness? Yeah, 100%. It's very, very habits-based. So... Basically, this is a really important piece, actually, the habits of happiness. So there are things that I do that enable me to cultivate and be happy. And when I don't do them, I don't feel very happy. Um, so that state of being happy is really different depending on if I'm doing these habits. So as soon as I wake up in the morning, before going on my phone, when my alarm goes off, I go straight to a free app called Insight Timer and I sit up in bed and I meditate for 10 minutes. I just watch my breath. I watch all the thoughts and I just be with myself before the external stimulus comes in from everything else in the world. I then write down three good things from the past 24 hours or three things I feel grateful for. The brain has a natural negativity bias. The brain is not wired for happiness. It's wired for survival. And I think when I realized the brain had a natural negativity bias, I was like, oh, okay, so I'm not just being negative. The brain is scanning for danger all the time. That really served us, our, our cavemen, cavewomen, ancestors. And it's done a good job. We're alive if we're listening to this right now. But it's really important we invite the mind to seek out what we're grateful for, what's not wrong, what's good in our life. Even on funeral days, breakup days, when I was on my own with COVID, I could still find something to be grateful for. And it actually gives you a dose of happy hormones. It gives you a dose of oxytocin, which is the same chemical that you get when you hug or you like play with a fluffy animal or a baby. Um, and I pray, I pray. I, I thank God and the universe for my blessings. And I ask for help for what I need. Do I need presence? Do I need compassion today? Do I need focus? I say, you know, Use me as an instrument for love and peace. Um, and then kind of surrendering it over, actually. And then I'm like, okay, let's surrender it over to higher power. Um, so gratitude, meditation, gratitude, prayer, self-compassion. Throughout the day, I say to myself, what do I need to best take care of myself today? Is there something kind you can say or do for yourself today? This is all from Dr. Kristen Neff's work. She's the, one of the pioneers in mindful self-compassion. 
So they are my habits of happiness teamed with what am I going to do this week for pleasure, purpose and peace. So most people plan their time in a calendar or a diary. On a Monday morning, I sit down, I look at all my different commitments with work and social life and friends and family. And I think, what am I going to do this week for pleasure, purpose and peace? And I put it in my calendar. And if I don't put it in my calendar, I don't do it. And then what happens is I'm less resilient that week. So there my and 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 does, and, and does it work out as a balance of those three? Is it like a, a third of each, a third of purpose, a third of peace? Not necessarily. It's so just to give you an example. So meditation and a walk in nature, it will be my peace. Um, purpose is my work. I just it brings me so much purpose and joy. And there's specific things that I I feel really like make my soul sing at work and so it's making sure I'm doing those things each week um and then pleasure like going to ecstatic dance on a on a Sunday morning for example (laughs) cooking a really nice meal so it's not necessarily um probably as strategic as this amount of time and it depends on different weeks like this week I need way more peace um so I I taught at Women's Aid the whole team of 65 staff at Women's Aid I know the CEO really well and they look after all the women and children that are leaving domestic violent relationships so I spent the day with them um and I was going to head back to London and it you know that brought me so much purpose um and life feels so fun and filled with joy and pleasure at the moment but I was like actually right now I need more peace so stayed in Cardiff a bit longer and done some more meditation just had some downtime so I think it comes back to that question all the time of what do I need to best take care of myself right now because we have the answers but often we don't carve out the time to ask ourselves and two, we don't give ourselves permission to do it. We're like, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? And it's like, hang on a minute. What do I need? Yeah, I do. I do think it's vitally important that we plan this stuff in. Right. Cause if you, it's, um, I guess it's, yeah, it takes a, it sounds funny, but it takes a degree of discipline to get that happiness and that balance. Um, I know personally, mm-hmm. Well, I'm a tiny bit out of balance myself today because I had a had a work drinks thing last night, and um, I'm just kind of starting to notice all the more like if you <laughs> the difference between mindset when you're in balance and when you're not is pretty profound. But I guess you kind of got to give yourself the headspace for that. But building that in and and being kind to yourself and aware that some days you'll be yeah more balanced than others, um, and then make up for it perhaps the day after. If you, I mean, yeah, you can't probably get all three all three in balance every day, right? As long as you do over the course of the week or the month or the year. Absolutely. And that's where the self-compassion piece comes in. One of my favorite sayings, and again, this is from Dr. Kristen Neff's research, I'm doing the best I can right now. And that's all I can do. And that's good enough. Hmm. Some days the balance goes out the window. I'm human, hmm. you know? It's like we're human beings when we're perfectly imperfect, we're not going to get it right all the time. And we have such high expectations of ourselves, right? Um, we've had an image created at the Museum of Happiness. I can share it with you guys. So it's a human and she's she's got this like cape and she's like, yes, top of the world. I can take on the world. And then next to her, it's the same human. She's just got the cape like over the head, like a blanket. It's like, I can't face the world today. Mm. On different days, we're going to feel differently. Sometimes we're going to feel like, yes, I can take on the world. And sometimes I'm like, oh, my God, I can't speak to anyone. I just need to shut the world out, (laughs) you know. And I think that's where the self-compassion piece comes in. Can I be with myself and have the same level of love, kindness and respect to myself, whether I am feel like I'm smashing life and I'm top of the world or I'm literally in bed with the quilt over my head being like, not today (laughs) yeah I think that I think that um I suppose humbleness and and honesty is really important in the kind of stuff that Joel and I talk about with our guests some of this stuff I think can sometimes almost be off-putting because people think well that's an aspiration that's a that's a bridge too far it's too far from where I'm at right now um and and allowing for the fact that you yes try to be mindful schedule this stuff disciplined and so on but not to I don't know aim for the stars all the time recognize that 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 yeah you can have these aspirations um just one thing you, you said um Vicky that I wanted to pick up on um I've personally been 
getting more and more interested in the importance of spirituality and we've sort of moved away from that a lot certainly in in the west where we all are at the moment um Mm -hmm. what would you say to our listeners who might be put off by the I don't know the idea of prayer or the ceremony the sort of religious Mm -hmm. element to spirituality yeah I think I think personally I I'm not set with one particular religion I will go into a church, a temple, a mosque, you know, out in nature. And for me, it's about connecting with higher power. That can be nature. It can be your ancestors. It can be God. It can be the universe. It can be whatever it is to you. And even if you're not sure what that is, maybe it's that humility of just like, okay, there is more to life than me and my human brain and me figuring this out of being able to surrender things over to higher power and almost trust the process. It's really served me actually when in the really difficult times in life where I've been like, okay, can I trust the process here that this is happening for some kind of reason? Um, And I think even just getting yourself out in nature that can help you connect to kind of the abundance of nature, kind of higher power, the interconnectivity of life. You only have to look at nature and see how it's all intertwined. And I think there's a wisdom and wonder, even just getting yourself out in nature. So I I am a very spiritual person. Um, And actually the kind of faith piece for me actually came when um, I went through a period of of depression a few years ago, and that is actually when I was like, okay, I've tried a lot of things now, um, and then I thought, oh, okay, maybe I haven't ever prayed or asked for help for for some, you know, I'm trying to do everything on my own, and that was the missing link and the missing piece for me. Um, and now I now I pray regularly, but what I would say for people, it's like, oh, I'm not sure or spirituality or religion can turn people off because there's been some quite bad examples of this been done that doesn't align with love and peace you know um but I think it's about finding your own truth that's what I would say find your own truth find your own path and for me it's a little bit of a pick and mix like I I do lots of different things and some things resonate and some things don't. And I think it's just going on that exploratory journey, I guess, of like what works for me and what doesn't. And you can just kind of let go of what doesn't. It's interesting hearing you talk about it as an exploratory journey, because I was going to ask you whether or not this was something that you grew up with. Did you grow up in like, you know, a a spiritual household or these disciplines, as Mike put it, like, you know, for, for some people, they are born into like whether or not it be ethnic, religious or groups of people where spirituality is kind of like baked into the whole culture. Whereas I know that for a lot of people in, I suppose, modern Western societies, although like, you know, it is to all intents and purposes, a Christian country, I find that it's kind of becoming very secular. And a lot of people have kind of like let go of like, you know, the, the, the older Christian ideals. And when I ask people of a certain generation, they kind of see going to church as like, yeah, you go there to get married, you go there for a funeral, but their relationship with mm. spirituality, with religion, with any of that is kind of dissipated. And so, yeah, I just wonder like how much this was part of your journey growing up and how did you come into these disciplines? Yeah, so short answer, no. Um, and kind of longer, yeah. So basically my, I think, so I was, I was, kind of exposed to quite a lot of suffering growing up so my both my mom and my father had gone through a lot of trauma and that manifested in my father would self-medicate with alcohol which is really common it's what a lot of people do so he was a very kind of violent alcoholic and my mom was her kind of trauma manifested in the sense of you know battling with depression anxiety a whole life um and so there was a lot of there was a lot of suffering I guess and I think that kind of planted some early seeds in my childhood of like what is happiness what is unhappiness like how can we how can we kind of do more at a preventative level so we don't get to a place where people are in crisis um so I I went to a church of England primary school um is this up in the is this up in the north somewhere 
Yeah, it's up in the north. Yeah. Where are you from? So where are you I'm, from? from New, I'm from Lancashire. So where are all the best people like, are from? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Whereabouts? You don't have to tell me exactly, I, but like Polton, Poltonly Files. Oh yeah, I do know where that is, yeah. Yeah. Um so oh, yeah, I went to a Church of England school, but there was a lot of things that didn't really resonate. Um, so I kind of just did it because that's what we were meant to do. And then through high school, I was just like a little bit of a, a rebel. And I it was just, you know, kind of got into a very different path to what I'm on now. Um, very much kind of hedonistic side of happiness and just feeling very disconnected, very confused about life and meaning and purpose and where my place was with it. Um and I would say I was quite troubled, actually. I was very troubled for many years. Um, and the thing that changed for me, so I went into working in mental health. And I think a lot of people, it's like if you've seen some suffering or a cause that really, you know, it, it tugs at your heartstrings, there's a, there's a desire to do something about it. So I ended up working with people in mental health, mainly teenagers. Um, and I was supporting a lot of people who were suicidal. And it was really, really tough. And again, it was those seeds that kind of were planted again of these questions of how do we work more at preventative level so people aren't in this place of crisis. Um, and for me to be able to do that job, I was like really struggling, holding space for all of these people that were going through so much darkness and suffering. So I was like, right, okay, what am I going to do? So I got some sessions with a positive psychologist and she just she just taught me a few really simple tools and techniques and nothing in my life had changed, but I could just hold it more lightly. So I started teaching it to the young people, started doing it with the staff. So I was like, okay, there's something in this kind of positive psychology stuff, everything Museum of based in positive psychology and research based but it was the early seeds and I was like okay all right we're on to something here and the mindfulness element really really spoke to me so I trained as a mindfulness teacher I went on a mindfulness and meditation retreat with Shamash Aladina who's co-founder of Museum of Happiness and it was one of those life-altering moments I was on this retreat in Morocco and I, it was those moments where I realized there are ways that you can make friends with your mind to hold space for difficult emotions, um, that there was something more than what I was experiencing, like almost being able to be the observer self, you're the curious observer of your experience. It was like, ah, and like thoughts aren't facts. We have 70,000 thoughts a day because we have a negativity bias. A lot of them are negative and critical but they're not true. It's And we try and say now, like, the story I'm telling myself is this. So it was this kind of insight into this world of spirituality, mindfulness, meditation, um, the self-compassion world. And then it took me on a really amazing traje trajectory. I, I went to the Himalayas. I've always The Dalai Lama has always been one of my teachers. Um, and I just felt called to, to go to the Himalayas, to go to his temple, received his teachings, uh, did a 10-day silent Vipassana retreat, which everyone was like, you can't do 10-day silence. You like, can't be quiet for like I half an I, hour. I tried, I tried to do a silent walk for an hour once and failed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's an endurance test for sure. It's like a marathon, but for the mind. And I think you have to train just like you would a marathon is my, is mm. my sense. So... Um, yeah, I really got into meditation. I think I used to turn to other less healthy things as a teenager to experience a sense of peace and freedom or euphoria. And through spirituality and mindfulness and meditation, I realized that peace is inside of you. You just need to remove the layers of interference do you still feel that you can get to places of euphoria through meditation as well? I mean, because obviously you used a couple of words there of getting to a place of peace, of an inner stillness, of a, a feeling of spirituality, of euphoria. And the fact that there is a, a large number of people who would know that they try to get to those places using yeah. physical inebriance, whether that be like alcohol, narcotic or, or otherwise. Yeah. But do you really feel, because I know that a lot of people, they listen to a conversation like this and go, this is all sounding above our head, or this is all sounding a, a bit like, yeah, a bit. Yeah. But yeah. do you really get to a place of euphoria? And I'm wondering if there's any like tips or, or 
or, or things that you can share with us as to yeah. how you kind of made that switch from somebody who was seeking the more hedonistic to been able to go inside but get to those same kind of places yeah a hundred percent so basically we have so much love and peace inside of us think of a newborn baby think of children right their pure joy their pure peace they're they're all about you know oneness they're not being dis- they're not discriminating it's like there's an interconnectivity and a oneness and a joy and a peace and a presence that children have and I like the way. Happened... There, sorry to interrupt. There was there's a good quote I quite like. Someone said something like, "Adults are just burnt out um, children." <laughs> yeah, and there's something in that. So there is some truth in that. So basically, when we get to about seven, the brain's natural negativity bias starts to develop. We're able to ruminate on the past, and we're able to worry about the future. Disconnects us from peace, right, and presence. Mm. Um, and then. You know, we go to school and then we grow into a teenager and there's no guidance. There's no support on how to make friends with the mind and tend to difficult emotions. What happens is your emotions hijack you. Your negativity bias tells you you're not good enough. You're not attractive enough. You're not smart enough. You're comparing yourself against other people. It's so easy to be in a place of suffering and unhappiness because we're not guided on how to use this wonderful thing, which is our mind. So through mindfulness and meditation, there's a lot of myths actually that you will start meditating, meditating, you'll just feel bliss and peace. That's not the case. It's more like training a wild horse or training a puppy. So for example, you're focusing on the present moment or a guided meditation, say my voice. Okay, so we're focusing on this. This is a moment of awareness. And then we'll get distracted. What am I going to have for lunch? 70,000 thoughts a day are going on in my head. Oh, planning this next email. Distraction, okay? Then you've got the awareness. Oh, I've been distracted. Then you have to kindly return back to the present moment. It's like training a puppy, trying to train a puppy to walk in a straight line. The puppy's like, want to go over here, want to go over there, da, da, da. If you get really angry at the puppy, it's, it's, it doesn't work. If you're too loving and supportive without any discipline, it doesn't work. It's like pottery. You've got to have a kind of firm hand of love and a firm hand of discipline and a balance. If I was to pick up a basketball or go to a piano, I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to play beautiful music or get it in straight away, right? It's a practice. What I found is when I first started meditating, it was not peaceful. It was not joyful. I realized, oh, good God, my mind is like, yeah, I can relate to this wild horse, this wild, unruly horse. Um, But then through time and practice and being kind to myself, not judging, oh, my God, all these thoughts. Oh, my God, I can't believe you're thinking about this. You're trying to do this meditation. Oh, you're so bad at meditating. Should just give up. It's the kindness. It's the practice. It's becoming the curious observer of what's going on through a lens of kindness, curiosity, and non-judgment. And the more we can do that, the more you will start to be able to put things down. So, Say if I had a glass um, and I'm just holding it and shaking it, eventually when you put it down for long enough the water just starts to settle you be the curious observer of what's going on so I think for a few years after I did Vipassana I would try and create like a whole day where it's like see if you can just be more present and more silent and dedicate it to meditation Um, and the more I did it the more peace I would find when I just do 10 minutes meditation a day, it's not necessarily peaceful or blissful or euphoric, but it's me creating those moments where I hit the pause button. And when I keep doing that, I'm less reactive. And when I don't do it, I'm much more likely for my emotions to rule me or be impatient or get upset about something. So it, it's called mindfulness practice. And the more we practice it, the more we will feel the benefits and reap the benefits. Um, on When I've done more longer stints of meditation or if I'm in nature, I can connect more to the peace and the bliss. Um, but if you go into a meditation practice with these really high expectations of it's going to be peaceful and blissful, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. <laughs> yeah, that, I think that totally makes sense because... I think that especially in this business, in the business world, 
CEOs, uh, like you know, people who are decision makers have definitely come to the realization that their physical health plays a part in their decision making. And you see that people are now going to the gym, like before, like, you know, the big meeting, like taking their lunch break to go you know, go for a swim or do Pilates or do whatever. Yeah. And so it kind of only follows that the, the next frontiers will be your emotional health, your mental health, your spiritual health, mm-hmm. because all of these are facets of who we are. Yeah. And so if there was the realization that, I mean, there was, there was for ages that, I mean, the archetype of the, the old school CEO was literally like, you know, the, the person of largesse because they just like do everything to excess, including eating and they end up having heart attacks. But people began to realize that I'm not at my optimum when I'm not looking after my physical. Mm-hmm. And I think that people will become to realize that I'm not at my optimum if I'm not looking after my spiritual, my emotional and these other yeah. facets too. And I think that what you just said that really resonates is I remember many times thinking that on day one of doing press-ups or going to the gym, that the next day that I would, uh, yeah, look like Arnie and, like, you know, be like, you know, ready to work out on Venice Beach. But you recognise that it is also a practice. You can't. Are you talking about? You're talking about short. You're talking about Schwarzenegger, not our friend. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, either way, I mean, he's also a pretty cut. Uh, but yeah, you, we, have, we have to we have to look after our look after ourselves in every facet rather than just this one. And all of it does take work as you said we're not going to play piano straight away we're not going to shoot hoops straight away and we're not going to find a place of euphoria and nirvana on our first day of trying to still our minds yeah absolutely and if you think of the difference between we work with guide dogs for the blind um if you think of a guide dog puppy you know they're so mischievous they're so playful they're quite unruly but with the right training, they're these incredible, you know, alliance for these people that help them to go on and live this incredible life. They wouldn't be able to if they didn't have this on side. And it's the, the difference is training. That's all it is. We can train our mind. We can. The mind likes being in the present moment. It feels more peaceful. But the kind of wiring of the mind, which is a blessing and a curse in many ways, is it does like to explore. It will go to the past. It will go to the future. So we've just got to find places of quiet, of peace, where we hit the pause button, where we digitally detox and just practicing mindful living. Like it doesn't even have to be, you know, I actually really recommend a few minutes of meditation every day. Um, But we can be mindful in any moment, just be mindful listening, mindful cooking, mindful walking, just trying to basically bring our mind from ruminating over the past and worrying about the future and just coming into the present moment, awakening the senses. And, you know, if you struggle with meditation, there's lots of ways to be mindful that isn't limited to just kind of sitting still and focusing on the breath. So it's basically finding what works for you. And I think one of the easiest routes in is go for a walk in nature and have your phone on aeroplane mode. See if you can even do it for 10 minutes. Look at the colors, take in the sense really feel the earth under your feet, look at the skies, notice the birds. Positive psychology says if you can go for a walk in nature, it's like giving yourself the best green prescription. If you can go by water and trees, it's giving yourself the best green and blue prescription. Even having houseplants really helps our nervous system. Just thinking about um, 2023 and the fact that we've got seems like many of the crises that we've been storing up for a while, both social and environmental, are really bubbling over. And and there's a danger, perhaps, that with the cost of living crisis um, and potential recession, um, that people, yeah, they, they, they're, the, the trajectory that Joel rightly pointed out, that the business world is perhaps moving towards recognising that actually, do you know what this this mental health stuff is is linked to physical health and our performance at work um, mm-hmm. is, is linked to both of those. Um, mm-hmm. I guess I'm just sort of wondering, do you think there's a danger with the, the sort of short-term crises that some of the more positive trends move towards an emphasis on some of the stuff that you have really delved deep into, um, that it might get sort of pushed off the priority list in the short term? And how do we avoid that? How can we make sure that people continue to prioritize this stuff? Mm. 
It's interesting. I think actually what we found in terms of trends with when there is a crisis, whether it's been the pandemic or different things, people are actually more seeking for solutions of how do we look after our mental health. So we've had our busiest few years of working with companies and community groups because we're in a place of crisis. And one of um one of my teachers, Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh, talks about the way out is in. And I actually think there's been more of an awakening of actually, we can't control the crazy things that are happening in the world. So positive psychology says we're living in this VUCA world. So it's volatile, it's uncertain, it's complex, and it's ambiguous. So Actually, it's so important that we have inner resources, we have inner resilience, that we can make friends with our mind. We tend, we can tend to difficult emotions because actually the world is a bit of a crazy place. Um, so we've actually found that people are, the soil is more fertile for it than ever before because we're going through turbulence in the world. Um, the challenge we have with companies is people thinking it's a quick fix. <laughs> Mm. of like okay we've had this one hour session now so now everybody's healed and it's like actually the brain uh, the brain learns through repetition and old habits die hard right so we have to keep practicing we keep learning we have to it's easier to make new habits form in community in teams where we're helping one another as accountability buddies um so yeah does that answer your question yeah, it's great. Um, I, th- I think that in my experience in the corporate world, that people do want those quick solutions. And it's, oh, we've given you a mindfulness app now, guys. Um, off you go. Yes. And there's a danger in this because it's unrealistic. There's no magic bullet. There is no quick fix. Like anything that you've ever really achieved in your life, I I bet that you've put quite a bit of time and energy in and consistency Mm. Um, and then we have to sustain it so it's the same it's the same with our mental health even me now as kind of CEO of Museum of Happiness if I don't stick to those happiness habits and practices I become quite unhappy quite quickly because it's something that's cultivated and we have to sustain it it's not like as Joel said right you go to the gym once and then you're like great now I'm really buff and then it's like well if you don't keep going it's it's not going to sustain it so it's the same with your mental health and wellness and we work with loads of top companies all over the world and I'm so grateful we work with the NHS and I think this is this is really the message that I'm trying to get out here of, is for for long for the longevity and of culture change we have to be consistent um and I think it's not about being perfect but it's about progress um and unfortunately we live in a culture where stress and burnout is so normalized and it's like no it's not normal this isn't mm. we sh- this is not how we need to be living and it doesn't serve the companies either no i think they're so starting to convers- realize what, that yeah i was going to say so what does that conversation look like when you have it with some of these big organizations because as you said i imagine that they're like what's the quick fix that we can work with the museum of happiness you can do like you know a couple of talks at lunchtime with our workforce and boom everyone's going to be happy and how do you kind of deal with that friction or how do you kind of come to some kind of compromise or yeah yeah, what do you what do you offer to the to the companies so our most transformative impactful work that we have done um is our six-week online course or it's a two-day full training um this is you go deep and because you're together whether it's over six weeks or two full days you go deeper and it sticks. You can see the inner transformation in people. Um, and we've, you know, we've had it evaluated and we've got the data and it's like, actually, you, the brain works through repetition. So you need you need to go deeper than one hour. So basically it all works. It's just to what level. So I usually say I can come in for an hour and we can plant some seeds and we can inspire people. And I can share as many practical tools and techniques as humanly possible in those 60 minutes. And if they come away with just one, I mean, I hope they come away with more, but if you just cherry pick one, you're like, yes, okay, I'm just gonna do this. That alone will change people's lives. It really does. Um, 
if you do a six-week course, if I can come in once a week for six weeks for an hour, it's going to stick. There's going to be longevity. There's going to be culture change. Um, same with the with the with the kind of two days. So that that's my that's my conversation. And the people that are really serious about it do it. That they they want to invest in the sustainable well-being and happiness of their team because they know that it's going to impact the organization in a really positive way. Um, and I think as well, we have community things online. So if, if I do go in for one hour, people can join our online global communities and keep learning with me. Um, so that's the conversation. And it's the difference, I guess, with, with organizations of how serious are you about it really? Is this a mm-hmm. tick box exercise or do you genuinely really care about your staff and want them to be more emotionally resilient um, and create a happier, kinder, more conscious workplace? So, and, and, it, and it ranges on the spectrum, right? Nice. Interesting, yeah, because I, I imagine that yeah, people who become more emotionally resilient and more community-minded and more happy are less necessarily uh, compliant like in the traditional organizational sense that you just do as you're told and just like accept your lumps you actually start mm-hmm. to think well maybe I'm worth more than this and so you're right that I can imagine some companies uh probably in the finance department they're weighing up whether or not there's value in uh empowering their people as much as I suppose people in the HR department who see that actually a happier work or happier being makes a happier doing yeah and I think it's really interesting because I think you know, we work with a lot of companies and I've got a really good relationship with a lot of them. And it's really been inspiring to see their journeys of the people and the companies that really invest in their staff well-being and happiness. You know, people have less sick days. People are more creative. They they're better at problem solving. Um people there's just a nicer environment to work in right and people are healthier people are happier and energy is contagious so if people are stressed and angry that what is that energy like in the office right it's a horrible place to work if people are kind and they're conscious and they're happy people want to go to work people feel appreciated you want to do better at your job so I think yeah it does really work and then I guess if I guess for companies, if you're thinking, oh, if they're going to be empowered and more conscious, maybe they'll leave and then they'll do something else. That's a positive thing too, because you want people in your team, in your company that fully believe in the values and are 100% in, right? Um, so yeah, I, I think it's win-win. Um, we're coming towards the end of our, our time together. Um, I One of the questions that we wanted to ask you was, I gather you've got some interesting tattoos. Tell us about those. <laughs> yeah, sure. So this says, I don't know if you can, it says I vow, I've got on my arm, I vow to live this day with love. So I spend quite a lot of times kind of in monasteries and learning from, you know, the deep meditation practitioners, the Zen masters. So Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, there's a monastery called Plum Village in France, it's got loads of plum trees and it's, um, I went there and there was there was a nun there, a Buddhist nun, and she'd survived the uh, the Vietnam War, elder, very elderly nun, and she she shared about how important it is to notice when you've moved to fear and return to love. Like, how do we be the love we want to see in the world? How do we be the change that we want to see in the world? Um, and the the kind of song that she sang, I won't sing the song, but I'll share it as a reading. She said, it's time to stop. It's time to breathe. It's time to take care of myself. How can I heal a wounded heart if I only see the dark? I vow to live this day with love. She was like, bombs were falling through the sky. People were dying. But if I disconnect from love and I get trapped in this place of fear, I'm no good to myself. I'm no good to anybody. I have to be the love that I want to see in the world. And I really resonated with that. Um, we work with refugees. We work with home, homeless people. We work um, with children going into care. Um, and they're, they're kind of, they're big, big problems. These people are stuck in this suffering. Um 
people, you know, work with suicidal people. And it's so important to keep connected to love and deep compassion. And I think, you know, we can use, the, the, I mean, the world and the news, they want us to think it's this awful, horrendous place and we get trapped in this place of fear. Um, and then we buy more things. <laughs> so, you know, there's, we just need to, you know, there's a quote, I think, um, what was his name? I think it was Fred Rogers. I think he was a TV presenter, an old school TV presenter. And he said, when the scary things on the news, my mum used to say to me, look for the helpers. There's always the helpers. So there is awful things going on in the world and we do need to take action and we don't need to leave it for everybody else. We need to be the change that we want to see. If you want to see more environmental change, if you want to see more love or kindness, you know, we need to do it. We need to take action. We can't wait for the governments to change, the school systems to change. We have to take that personal action. We have to be driven by love. Martin Luther King said, you know, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what I really feel. Amazing. Thank you. And particularly given that we're yeah, in, in a time of increasing polarisation and potential conflict. I mean, there's clearly terrible conflict going on in Ukraine right now. I think holding on to mm -hmm. that is is all important. Um, I think we're coming to an end. Joel, have you got any any final thoughts? And then I'm going to ask the ask three very quick closing questions um, that we're we're asking all of our guests. Anything else from you, Joel? Uh, well, actually, yes. As you were showing us your tattoo there, Vicky, on your arm, I noticed that you had another tattoo and it looked like maybe a lotus flower. Yes, yes, a lotus. So basically lotuses can only grow in mud um and there's this sense of no mud no lotus so how do we learn and grow through what we go through in life so life will throw mud um we as humans it's part of the human experience in life we are going to experience pain or suffering but I think when we can hold on to this sense of trusting the process and learning to grow through what we grow go learning to grow through what we go through, we end up going through this sense of they call it post-traumatic growth. So we've probably heard of um, PTSD, but actually there's this sense of how do we grow through these things that we go through the really difficult things. When I think of my own life. You know, it has been the really difficult things that have shaped me who I am today. Like if my parents didn't suffer so much with their mental health, would I go into this work? Who knows? Probably not. Um, so I think it's holding on to that. You know, there'll be times in our life where we feel like we're kind of stuck in the mud. Sometimes we feel we're up to our eyes in the mud. Sometimes we feel we're drowning in the mud. But just holding on to this sense of, okay, if there could be any positive value in this, what could it be? And sometimes like when I was really stuck in a place of depression and I was like, I know value <laughs> come from this. Like this is just crap. Um, but there was, right. If I'm working with people that really suffer and I have no, I'm just like, everyone be happy. I'm so disconnected from it. Right. It's given me deep compassion. And I think what I've realized is, when we go through suffering, it often does give us some insight, some wisdom into something that shapes us who we are. Um, in Japanese, in Japan, there's um, there's something called kintsugi. So if there is a broken pot, they fill it with gold, and they say actually these cracks is where the light gets in. Um, and it's these cracks, actually, they're almost like our scar, our scars, our wounds. And it's like, don't hide them. These are what make us more beautiful, more precious, more valuable. And it's called Kintsugi. So, yes, I love this sense of no mud, no lotus. And it really helps me. Like at the points where you hit rock bottom or at the points where you're facing a lot of challenge and adversity, it's like, OK, at some point I will be able to use this fertilizer to grow. I don't know what it is right now, but maybe there's going to be some wisdom. There's going to be some insight. How do I best take care of myself in this moment? Because right now this is really hard. Can I choose not to attack myself? Because this is hard already. How do I show up for myself? Like I would a really, really good friend with that love, that compassion, knowing that at some point, it might be years from now, there will be a lotus.
Beautiful. Uh, I've got a mic. So before you come in with your final three, just one last quick whistle stop of a question, which I think just brings it into a bit of context, which is everything that we've learned about you, which has been amazing and understanding what makes you tick. What is ahead for the Museum of Happiness and how are you bringing this into what the museum is doing? Yeah, so it's a really exciting chapter for Museum of Happiness now. So Museum of Happiness will be seven on the 15th of Feb. And we, so we used to have a centre, we used to have a physical centre, and then we had to close because of the pandemic. We had a global community then. So I trained over 700 people all over the world to do what I do on their local level in their community. Now we've got a physical space again, which is opening really soon in partnership with a really awesome plant-based cafe called The Wellbeing Co. So for every 10 coffees they sell, they plant a tree at the Eden Project. So we're gonna have this the vegan cafe downstairs and then Museum of Happiness will be upstairs and we're going to run everything on the gift economy on a pay it forward level so we've been very blessed that we've been gifted the space without rent and bills so we're going to offer our services now without price tags and say you know we're offering this in the spirit of a gift you're welcome and invited to pay forward whatever you can so people that can't afford yoga meditation sound healing inspiring talks you know maybe they'll contribute 50p people that can afford it the bankers that come in from the city and access, maybe they can pay forward more so we're going to be running on trust um i am really excited to test this model this year um i've done a lot of research into the gift economy i've lived in auroville in india which is completely gift economy really incredible kind of like eco town um and we're at a point now where We've got the physical space. We can run the community classes, gift economy. We've got 700 happiness teachers all over the world. And we're working in schools and companies and in the NHS. So my vision is to really test this model this year and then social franchise it. Pick our best happiness teachers from different places around the world and then have a museum of happiness community in every city around the world. So watch this space. Wow, amazing. That's very exciting. And yeah, it's been really lovely to find out more about you and the Museum of Happiness at large. But go on, Mike, take it away. I know that we've got some... Uh... Yeah, I'm just excited about having a Museum of Happiness everywhere. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> nice one. Thank you so much. So we've got these three questions which we're asking everybody. Um, just, just some quick um, thoughts. Uh, the first one is... What book would you recommend to people at the moment? What do you enjoy? Oh, picking one is hard. Um, Soil Soul Society by Satish Kumar. He is one of my heroes and teachers. I had the joy and honour of interviewing him last May. Um, soil, we have to take care of the earth and Mother Nature. When the planet suffers, we're causing suffering to ourselves. Um soul we have to find a way to listen to our soul and let that be the compass that guides us society how do we make a positive contribution to society it's a really incredible book amazing thank you check it out i've got to add it to my like 700 books that i need to read <laughs> um and i'll put it will go to the top of the list that one sounds really cool um you mentioned uh, the word listening what are you listening to at the moment what in terms of podcasts and things like yeah, that podcast music birds whatever you want yeah oh my god to be really honest I'm so obsessed with Beyonce's renaissance album I tried to get tickets mm. today to her world tour and we haven't got them <laughs> but we're, we're going again on February um so yeah oh my god yeah I just love her and um there's a really amazing woman um oh what's she called is it Tony Jones Yes, yeah, so she. Were you going to say Tony was... Braxton? That's just oh, showing my age. <laughs> yeah, so stop giving our age away, Mike. <laughs> um, I listen to her. She just says all these really powerful, different things. So she's got one about work ethic and money and values and empowerment and just just having her on, you know, getting ready or on your commute. Actually, it's really important. Actually, what's going into our mind. So just what we what we water grows so just being really mindful are you letting fear and despair in or are you having positive things said to you and empowering yourself mm. I love the way that we seem to have got to a stage as, as a society where we're all a bit 
stressed out to say the very least in our working lives and then we come home and watch stuff about serial killers on tv and then yeah. we <laughs> and then we listen to podcasts about serial killers like I wonder why we're in this yeah, mess and- <laughs> the nervous system really yeah, sorry, quick thing about the nervous system mm. this might be useful for people to know so the nervous system we've got our threat zone our drive zone our soothe system and our nervous system all mammals have this and the way you speak to yourself will put you in your threat zone where you literally your body thinks you're in life or death situation or your drive zone or your soothe zone so things that we're absorbing and taking into our mind even watching things if you're watching really quite distressing things your body goes into its threat it literally releases stress hormones or if you're listening to you know peaceful things happy things we just got to be so mindful with our mind mm. i was watching i've been watching the white lotus recently because everyone's been saying you've got to watch that <laughs> and i just find it really really miserable like they're all everyone's so unhappy like it's a very good representation of where where some of the sort of privileged have got to in their lives um but uh that's stressful i just want to watch something oh, no, about no don't watch it <laughs> everyone else's <laughs> Um, okay, last question to end on a on on a positive. Um, this conversation's been all about happiness, but what's what in particular is giving you hope at the moment? What's giving me hope at the moment? Oh, I always have so much hope. I think um I think in life in general, there's always the dark and the light. It's always been that way, right? And I think, you know. When I, when I see, just even like, when I go into schools, actually, so I went into a school a few weeks ago, and I was working with 10-year-olds, they really get this stuff, so we did a whole session on peace and happiness in yourself, peace and happiness in the world, and at the end, I had this kind of world peace flag, and I said, you know, what are you going to do to cultivate more happiness and peace in yourself, on one post-it note, and in the world, and this little boy said, well, hang on a minute, isn't it, isn't it the same thing? Because the more peace and happiness I cultivate in myself, the more peace and happiness I'm putting out in the world. And I was like, yeah, that is exactly you got it. it. Yeah. Like the youth of today, they don't want to harm the environment. They don't want to go out and get drunk and do drugs so much. They're like having smoothies and, you know, um, people care more. People are more conscious now than ever before. The young people give me so much hope. Um, and you know, of course it's context dependent where you go in the world and pockets of deprivation. And, but do you know what, even in the schools that I go where they're really in a deprived area, they get this stuff. They really get down with mindfulness, self-compassion, making friends of the mind, kindness, like they really get it. Um, so I think, yeah, that gives me a lot of hope for the next generation. Beautiful. I believe the children of the future too. Yes. They are. Thank you so Thanks, much, Becky. Bit. That was amazing. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, gotcha. thank you. So, yeah, thank you so much. So many things that I think, yeah, we've both like learned and be able to take away. And yeah, we look forward to following the journey, not only yourself, but also the Museum of Happiness and hopefully being patrons ourselves sometime very soon. Yeah, it's exciting. Thank you for having me. It's been a joy. Thank you. I really loved such a personal and gentle conversation and the amount of simple takeaways that Vicky shared with us was, I mean, yeah, phenomenal. I think sometimes our conversations can be a little heady and that one was definitely from the heart. I think self-acceptance and gratitude are really key to my own spiritual and emotional development. So it was really great to hear how Vicky personalized her own experiences. Yeah, a bit I really loved was um, her reference to the three P's um, and the fact that if we can get them all in balance then we'll be in a good place so those three P's of pleasure purpose and peace pretty good um, I love a bit of alliteration as well so that one yeah definitely going to take that one away yeah actually quite on that alliterative uh, track she also said that stuck with me that there aren't quick fixes that it takes community to maintain consistency I mean, look, if we're ever going to make progress with any of our societal challenges, we're really going to have to upgrade from being audiences and consumers and customers to cohorts of communities. So got to be driven by purpose, not products. I think it's very powerful and necessary for us all to remember. Yeah, the fact that, that, that she's talking about the fact that this is a process of ongoing, ongoing repetition, ongoing journey. Our brain learns through repetition 
and as you said the community bit if we want to make these changes then being in a team being in a tribe being in a a, a safe group uh, where you hold each other accountable is all important I think lastly for me on this one what was great was our focus on the being so much more than the doing I mean it's actually quite the challenge to not veer into conversations of doing rather than being because I mean we're even doing the podcast and I don't think we've quite reached a place of being the podcast but we're getting there yeah we are yeah we are um one final bit from me then I I love this quote from Martin Luther King about love and hate hate cannot drive out hate only love can do that amen really nice Thank you for listening to this episode of Better Beings. We are an independently produced show and your support is what helps us develop and grow. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with friends, family and colleagues and consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Big thanks to our technical producer, Elliot Fisher, and to our researcher and guest-facing producer, Tara Rudd. Please follow us at Better Beings Pod on both Instagram and Twitter for quotes, updates and guest insights and subscribe and follow on YouTube, Spotify or Apple Podcasts and never miss an episode. Thank you so much for being with us and see you on the next episode.